the Snake River Killer podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. She was on the porch and she waved goodbye. And that was the last time I saw her. Hey everybody, Brandon Schrand here. I wanted to start this episode with the announcement that our Patreon page is now live. And I want to thank some of our first patrons. Catherine, Megan, Chelsea, Chantel, Jason, Maggie, and Natalie. And those are just a few of our early Patreon subscribers. And I can't thank them enough. If you haven't joined, consider doing so. Why? Well, your support will get you access to extended interviews, behind-the-scenes audio and video, book club recommendations, exclusive content, discounts on merch, early access to episodes, free stickers, and more. But your support will also keep this show ad-free and continue to help install commemorative park benches for the victims. And speaking of which, although we installed the bench for Christina White last summer, we'll be dedicating it the first weekend of March. Patreon members will get access to the video coverage of the event, so stay tuned on all of that. To become a Patreon member, you can navigate to snakeriverkiller.com and click on the banner at the top of the screen, or you can click on the link in the show notes of this episode. As you can imagine, we have been receiving a lot of tips, suggestions, and theories coming in from all over the world. And I mean that literally. I try to consider and weigh all of these tips and suggestions as fully and as carefully as I can, and I put them to the team. Some of the tips have definitely caught our attention, like the customized clarinet case Bells and Danette found in a Seattle area Goodwill. Other tips, though, don't quite have enough connective tissue to really pursue, at least not currently. But I do save all of the tips because, listen, there's a good chance that one tip that might not seem relevant now could become extremely relevant in the future. For instance, one of our longtime and loyal listeners, Tamara, pinged me a while back after she watched the John Carpenter film The Fog three separate times. Now, if you'll recall from episode 5, Lance claims to have watched The Fog at the Red Baron Pizzeria the night Stephen, Brandy, and Christina went missing. Anyway, Tamar told me that there were all kinds of connections or through lines in that film, so I checked it out. 
The film had actually been on my radar for a while, I just hadn't gotten around to it. Immediately though, I saw what she meant. If you haven't seen the film, it centers on a radio DJ named Stevie who has set up her jazz radio station in a lighthouse along the coast in a California town. One scene early on shows Stevie looking out over the ocean. Alone, she says, quote, nothing but water, Stevie, but it sure beats Chicago, end quote. So we have the reference of California, water, and Chicago just in that opening sequence. Also this, the film opens with an Edgar Allan Poe line that reads, quote, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream, end quote. And here you'll recall a couple of references to Edgar Allan Poe from episode 11. Much of the fog is related to an ancient story of sailors who died at sea just before midnight on the 21st of April. So in this instance, you have sailors, ships, and a date that recalls, to my mind, the disappearance of Christina White on April 28th, just seven days later. So there is clearly a lot of stuff there that could totally be through lines. Or are all of these touch points just layers of coincidence? I don't know. Apart from the film, I want to point to another instance where I don't know if I'm dealing with Twilight Zone grade coincidence or something else entirely. But when I was doing research for this episode, I was looking into gimmick rallies held around the Bay Area when Lance was living there. I found one newspaper announcement for a rally that was held on July 26, 1969 in Oakland, almost two months exactly before the Lake Berryessa murders. In an eerie stroke of actual coincidence, the clipping notes toward the bottom that, quote, it is not necessary to own a foreign or sports car to participate in this gimmick rally. Rallies are run in everything from Cadillacs to Carmen Ghia's, end quote. Carmen Ghia, the very car Brian Hartnell was driving and on which the Zodiac had written. After acknowledging that this was an obvious coincidence, I decided to poke around in that case again just because, you know, it was the rabbit hole I was closest to at the moment. And it was then that I turned my attention to the map of Lake Berryessa and the location of that crime scene. And that's when I noticed something eerie, something I had been overlooking the entire time I spent examining that case previously. The highway that Hartnell and Shepard, and therefore their killer, the Zodiac, would have taken to get to that spot was, you guessed it, Highway 128. Now let me ask you this. Is that a freak coincidence, or is that something else? What do we know? Christina's bike plate, if it even existed, reportedly read a Soden 128. Red Wolf Crossing, the bridge over the Snake River, and near which Kristen David's remains were found, that's on Highway 128. That same highway runs right past Lance's dome houses. Two highways with the same number leading to two crime scenes in two states? I have no idea what to make of that. Again, likely a coincidence, but man, if it is, that is a wild coincidence. Now, you can find both the gimmick rally clipping and the Barry SM app on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, articles, links, and maps and timelines, respectively. All that said, however, when it comes to these apparent coincidences or through lines, I want to pump the brakes for a minute. As I have said from the outset, the through lines or reoccurring themes are aspects of these cases that we ought to pay attention to because of their reoccurrence. 
However, I want to mention something team member Kathy Belbin and I discussed a while back, and that is something called the frequency illusion. The frequency illusion, otherwise known as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, is simply a cognitive bias, and it works something like this. Maybe you've been sitting around at a, a party and you overhear a word like, I don't know, exculpatory, which means evidence that proves your innocence. And you've never really heard that word before. But then the next day you're watching a movie and there it is, exculpatory. And then the following day you're online reading an article and boom, there it is again, exculpatory. And you're thinking, what's going on here? Is this word all of a sudden super popular? Well, no, it just seems super popular to you, but the word has been around for, well, a long time. It's just that you have only now stumbled upon it, and now your mind, which is trained to see patterns and repetitions, has been picking up on this word, and it only seems like it's occurring frequently. I mention this here because when we're investigating complex cases like these, there's a real possibility that what we see as through lines are just a matter of frequency illusion. They existed before Lance Voss, they existed after Lance Voss, and what we're seeing is just a random pattern. But the important part is that we're cognizant of the cognitive bias, right? That we know that it's a thing that we can gut check ourselves against. And it was something that I wanted to talk a little bit more with Kathy about. Well, I think it teaches us something about thinking and about problem solving and about being careful investigators. Anytime we're asked to metacognate or think about our own thinking, I think it's valuable. And I think that also involves sharing our ideas with other people and having the vulnerability to do that because we know that pitching ideas to others means that others might say, no, that idea doesn't fit or I don't like it. But I think that's all part of being part of a team and having listeners, I think, who do the same, who share ideas as well. I was just going to say it's useful, I think, not only for us as investigators, but for the listeners. And as you know, many of our listeners, a great deal of them are active listeners. And by active listeners, I don't mean that they're just listening. I mean that they're actually digging into stuff. They're doing their own research. So I think it's, it's, worth, um, it's worth it for them as another, another way to kind of gut check themselves, gut check us. I would welcome a listener going, I know you think that that's a through line, Brandon, but maybe maybe you are in the throes of right. frequency illusion. And I would welcome that from a team member as well as from a listener. So I think it's useful. That said, though, I also don't want to deter listeners from sending anything our way. Right. Yeah. I think it's better to have more clues and narrow down, like you were just saying. And you never know when we might see a connection or something might pop up over and over again that we hadn't thought of as being important. And then suddenly we notice it, you know, the presence of a certain type of ring or a certain hair color or a bicycle or who knows what. So as you can see, there is an important, albeit fine line between what might be a significant connection between a piece of information and these cases and what we might attribute to the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And I mention this here too, mostly for my own benefit, so that I can stay level-headed and clear-eyed as we move forward. But I wanted to bring it to your attention as well, just as something to consider when you're digging into the cases. It's a solid gut check mechanism, I think, and it's worth thinking about. 
That said, I also believe that there is considerable value in throwing everything at the wall, so to speak, just to see what sticks. So I don't want to deter you from submitting tips. We risk only time by considering everything. Now, for this episode, I need to go back to the winter of 1969, because there are two cases in particular that I think deserve some serious consideration. And just so you know, I am only skipping around in time because these are cases that I've just recently stumbled across, and I do think that there are viable connections to Lance that need to be sussed out. You will recall that by late November 1969, Lance had been out of the Navy for about a year and a half and was living with his mother and stepfather in Saratoga, California, a bedroom community of San Jose. That November, on the 15th, Lance had just turned 22. A few weeks later, on the evening of December 1st, Gretchen Davis, age 44, stepped out of her home at 158 Pioneer Avenue in Walnut Creek, California, and shut the door behind her. She then got into the family car, cranked the ignition, put it in gear, and set out for the drive north to Concord to pick up her husband, James, from the service station he managed. James Augustine Davis was a Berkeley man and former naval officer, and Gretchen Frobase Davis was trim and beautiful with dark hair and lively eyes and was well known in Walnut Creek's many social clubs. That night was a Monday, and it was 10.30 p.m. when Gretchen had left her two daughters at home, as was the routine. Elaine was 17, and the youngest daughter, Heidi, was three. It was about 49 degrees, and patches of fog hung here and there, fingering trees and power lines across the East Bay area. 17-year-old Elaine was pretty with an easy smile, azure eyes, and blonde shoulder-length hair that she combed straight back. She was a senior at the nearby Pleasant Hill High School, where she was active in choir, the girls' glee club, and the scholastic club. These clubs gave her the opportunity to travel around the East Bay Area to perform at various high schools and venues. Like her mother and maternal grandmother, Eula Wetmore, Elaine was also active in civic activities. For several years, Elaine joined a cadre of girls her same age at the Concord Community Hospital where she helped the nursing staff with basic duties. Because of their pink and white striped uniforms, these teenage girl volunteers were called candy stripers, and Elaine Davis served as a candy striper for at least the past three years. But despite these activities and being an active Girl Scout, Elaine was described by her parents as shy and studious. That previous May, Elaine performed in the chorus section of the high school's theatrical production of Once Upon a Mattress, a comedy set in a fictional medieval kingdom in Elizabethan Europe. Ruled by the evil queen Agravaine and the mute king Sextimus, the kingdom is waiting for Prince Dauntless the Drab to find a suitable princess. But no princess is good enough for the queen, who puts all would-be princesses through unfair trials and questions. One such question that ruled out the 12th would-be princess was, quote, What was the middle name of the daughter-in-law of the best friend of the blacksmith who forged the sword that killed the beast? End quote. The play was advertised in East Bay Area newspapers and was staged on May 15th and 16th of 1969. By all accounts, the play was a success and Elaine had not a care in the world. Seven months later, however, on the night of December 1st, 1969, an unspeakable darkness settled upon the Davis homes, shattering their lives forever. 
At some point between 10.30 p.m. when Elaine's mother left the house to pick up her husband James and 11.15 when the couple returned home, Elaine had vanished. Only the three-year-old sister, Heidi, remained in the house asleep. Immediately, they knew something was not right. Left behind were Elaine's glasses and wallet containing $4. Nearsighted, Elaine wouldn't have voluntarily left home without her glasses. But most important and most distressing to her parents is that Elaine would never have left her sister unattended. Curiously, Elaine's navy peacoat was gone. If she had been forcibly taken from the house, did her abductor allow her to grab her coat before leaving, but not her glasses? I don't know. One web sleuth named Howard Davis, unclear to me if he is a relative, provided some insight that might explain why she left with her coat on, but not her glasses. He wrote on one forum, quote, I can say now she was probably sitting on her porch smoking. Her father was a military man and quite strict, so she would hide this habit. And the perpetrator could have followed her to her home, and she and her mother were shopping at the outdoor Concord Mall that day, and he may have spotted her there. The perpetrator may have walked by the house and asked her for a cigarette and or light, and once he got close to her, he grabbed her and abducted her, end quote. Now, that's speculation, of course, but what we do know is this. Two days later, on December 3rd, while police in Contra Costa County conducted a massive search for Elaine, going door-to-door and patrolling neighborhoods, a housewife named Darlene Sullivan from San Jose found a navy blue peacoat along a remote stretch of highway not near Walnut Creek, but some 65 miles south on Highway 17 between Saratoga, where Lance was living, and Santa Cruz, where Antoinette and Nino would be found dead three years later. Darlene Sullivan noted that the coat was missing one colored gold button, but was otherwise in good condition, and she did not immediately connect it to the girl who had gone missing from Walnut Creek. So when she returned home to San Jose, she had the coat dry cleaned. Two days later, on December 5th, one of Elaine's brown loafers was found near a freeway ramp at Stone Valley Road off Highway 680 in Alamo, some five miles from Elaine's home. On December 16th, 11 days after the shoe was discovered, authorities found the missing gold-colored button from the coat at the rear of the Davis home. It was about this time that Mrs. Sullivan of San Jose heard the news and made the connection between the missing girl and the coat that she had found. Although Elaine's mother verified that it was indeed Elaine's coat, the dry cleaning ruined any chance for law enforcement to secure any evidence from that coat. Three days after the button had been discovered, on December 19, 1969, a woman named Joanne Albano was walking on the beach near Lighthouse Point in Santa Cruz when she made a most grisly discovery. There, on the beach, almost in the exact same spot where Antoinette and Nino would be found, was a partial torso of a young white female. Along with the partial torso were partial arms and legs. Given the impossibility of identifying the torso without its head and teeth or hands, police were cautious about saying that the young woman was Elaine Davis. In fact, because they had been told that the victim was likely 20 to 25 years old, they ruled out the possibility of the corpse belonging to 17-year-old Elaine Davis altogether. And that's where her case stood for 32 years. In 2001, however... Walnut Creek Detective Lou Doty dove back into the case. 
On reviewing the files, he learned that the remains had been buried in an unmarked grave in Santa Cruz. Doty set forth the process of exhumation, and after securing a DNA analysis, Doty answered the 32-year-old question. Did the remains in fact belong to Elaine Davis of Walnut Creek? The answer definitively was yes. I recently had a chance to speak with Detective Doty on the phone, though he politely declined to come on the show. We ended up chatting for quite some time, and along the way I learned that he knew the Lewiston-Clarkston-Moscow-Idaho-Pullman-Washington area very well. Turns out he grew up in Idaho and has family all over this area. I also learned that he was fairly surprised that I was able to track him down as he keeps an extremely low profile, which, you know, coming from a detective, I took as a compliment. The other thing I learned is that Lou worked with Paul Holes on the Elaine Davis case and is in regular contact with Paul. In fact, he offered to put me in touch with him, and if that happens, I will let you know, though I'm not holding my breath. I mention all of this here because both Lou and Paul believe that Elaine Davis was a victim of Philip Hughes, a serial killer active in the East Bay area at the time. Hughes was convicted on three other homicides, Maureen Field in 1972, Lisa Ann Beery in 1974, and Letitia Fago in 1975, but he has not confessed to any other murders, Elaine Davis or otherwise, which means, of course, that we still don't really know who killed Elaine. And that is why I wanted to talk to Lou, to see if he had heard of Lance Foss. He hadn't. So I briefed him and explained why I was interested in the Elaine Davis case in the first place. One of the primary reasons I am interested in her case, as it may relate to Lance, has to do with the site of disposal. Elaine's remains were found along the exact stretch of beach that Antoinette Nino's body would be found three years later. Now that provides a proximal connection. The nuance there, of course, is that Antoinette was in Santa Cruz of her own volition, whereas Elaine's remains were dumped there. But all we have to do is look at the Long Island serial killer to see that some killers tend to gravitate to the same dumping locales. In other words, it is conceivable that if a killer dumped the remains of a victim in X location, he would then become drawn to that location by either dumping more bodies there or by trolling the area for more victims. This phenomenon was something Gloria has been looking into and was something we talked about recently. I was looking at the Elaine Davis case because her remains dismembered were found in Santa Cruz along the same beach area as as Antoinette Nino's body was found. Right. And, you know, she was from Walnut Creek, which is essentially right outside of Concord, California. Concord was Port Chicago. That was the naval town where they were headquartered out of was Concord. So a lot of proximity there. And uh, when I was writing, I mentioned in the episode that, you know, of course, Antoinette Nino was down in Santa Cruz of her own accord. Elaine Davis was dumped there. Uh, three years before Antoinette and Nino. But there is this phenomenon of like, if you look at the Long Island serial killer of dumping grounds or the serial killer you talked to in, was it San Quentin? Yes, San Quentin. And this one that you spoke to mentioned that he referred to like where he would dump bodies as his graveyard. Yes, he said he wouldn't, not in his graveyard. So Stephen Parasol, that's what he was referring to, not in my graveyard. He would only put certain types of victims in his graveyard. He wouldn't put like, yes. like Stephen is so different from everybody else in the cases we're looking at. 
that he wouldn't, maybe that's the reason he wasn't with Brandy and Christina. Right. So his, where he, he put them, that's his fantasy. Right. He doesn't want anybody dirtying that fantasy. He's got to concentrate on them. Right. And if we were to speculate and just say, for sake of argument, that Stephen was the one that interrupted him and had to be killed because he witnessed him, Stephen's presence would piss him off, right? And yes. ruin the fantasy and he, he, he ruined everything. And so he can't be where those two bodies are. Correct. Okay, so beyond the location of disposal, there are other similarities you ought to be aware of. Elaine was 17, the same age as Antoinette, so she fits within the same age range. Third, like Brandy, Christina Nelson, Kristen David, Stephen Pearsall, and Antoinette Nino, Elaine was involved in the performing arts. Fourth, Lance was living near San Jose at the time, which sits between Walnut Creek to the north and Santa Cruz to the south, giving him, perhaps, the chance to hunt north of home and dispose of a body south of home. And more on his location in a moment. Fifth, items of her clothing were missing, meaning it is possible that her killer kept some of those clothing items as trophies. And, of course, missing clothing has been a throughline in all of these cases. Sixth, there is the manner of death, dismemberment, like that of Kristen David. And seventh, like Kristen David, Elaine Davis was deposited into a body of water. And water, as has been discussed, features prominently in these cases and those of the Zodiac. In fact, on November 21st, 1969, 10 days prior to Elaine Davis's disappearance, and just six days after Lance's 22nd birthday, the Zodiac, or someone claiming to be Zodiac, sent a letter and cryptogram to the San Jose Police Department, much of which has been redacted by the FBI. The San Jose letter, as it has been called, appeared to be threatening a woman in San Jose, whose name, like other details, was also redacted. The San Jose Police evidently took the letter seriously enough that they put a 24-hour surveillance detail on her home. When it comes to the Elaine Davis case, one Zodiac web sleuth, Richard Grinnell, poses a very interesting question, one that hasn't been posed by anyone else that I know of who has worked the Zodiac cases. In part, he writes, quote, If the letter was mailed from San Jose, or the Zodiac killer had reason to be in San Jose on November 21st, 1969, then it is extremely relevant that the abductor of Elaine Davis just 10 days later in the Bay Area would again be heading to San Jose on his way to Lighthouse Point in Santa Cruz. If the Zodiac Killer was responsible for the abduction and murder of Elaine Davis, he would have taken her through or near to San Jose on his way to the coast, end quote. Then Grinnell writes this, and this is the part I really want to underscore, quote, was the Zodiac living or working there during this period or had reason to be in the San Jose area? The San Jose letter and cryptogram, one could argue, places him in San Jose on November 21st, 1969. If he returned there only 10 days later, it may be significant. End quote. This is the first time, to my knowledge, that anyone has wondered if Zodiac had ties to or had lived in San Jose, where Lance was living at the time. And recall here that Saratoga, where his mother was living, is just a bedroom community of San Jose, so they're one and the same. And this line of inquiry came via the Elaine Davis case. So does that mean Lance is Zodiac or that Lance is responsible for Elaine Davis's death? Or anyone's death for that matter? No, of course not. 
but when you have several points of overlap between Elaine Davis's death and elements of the cases directly linked to Lance, well, one has to wonder, and it has to be looked at, if for no other reason than to rule him out. Here's something else to consider when it comes to time and place. On November 22nd, the day after the San Jose letter, and one week exactly after Lance's 22nd birthday, there appeared an ad in the Oakland Tribune announcing a gimmick rally that was to be held the following Friday on November 28th in East Oakland. You can find a copy of this ad on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, articles, and links. Now, if Lance had participated in this particular gimmick rally, it would place him within 20 miles of Elaine Davis's home and just three days before her abduction. The rally ran from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., and depending on how the course was set up, participants could theoretically cover quite a bit of territory in three hours, making it possible that the rally could have even drawn closer to Elaine's house. Here's another thing. Recall that in episode 11, Chris Went noted that gimmick rallies begin at shopping malls or shopping plazas and end at pizzerias. Now recall that Elaine had been at a shopping mall on the day she was abducted, which was a Monday. And because Concord is only about five miles from Walnut Creek, it makes sense that she would be shopping closer to home on a weeknight. However, is it possible that Elaine Davis could have been shopping in East Oakland that previous Friday of November 28th, one week exactly after the Zodiac mailed his San Jose letter and cryptogram? I believe so, and I'll explain why. That day in 1969 was not only the day of the gimmick rally in East Oakland, but it was also what we have come to know as Black Friday. It was the day after Thanksgiving, the biggest shopping day of the year. In fact, on Thanksgiving Day, a JCPenney ad in the Oakland Tribune read, quote, the Christmas season officially begins right here tomorrow, end quote. In other words, it is entirely possible that Elaine could have been shopping there with her mother Gretchen. In 1969, the population of Walnut Creek was under 40,000. Concord claimed about 85,000 residents, whereas Oakland had a population over 360,000 meaning Oakland would have been a far greater shopping venue than either Walnut Creek or Concord. Now, again, speculation, but it's not totally out there either, especially when you consider that Oakland or East Oakland is the closest major city to Walnut Creek. Curious about gimmick rally events in the East Bay area, I reached out to Chris Went. I only asked him if he could find any info on this particular East Oakland Black Friday rally. He wrote back saying that he would look into it, but was doubtful given that a lot of those early day records weren't always kept. But then he offered up this bit of information, which I find totally fascinating. He wrote, quote, Standard start locations in the East Bay that I remember from the early 70s were Lake Merritt in Oakland, Southland Mall in Hayward, and Sun Valley Mall in Concord, end quote. Although Chris said the early 1970s, it is entirely possible and quite probable that the Sun Valley Mall in Concord would have been a starting location in the final months of 1969. That mall is just five miles from Elaine's house, and she visited that particular mall on the day of her disappearance. So now we have two real possibilities in which Lance could have theoretically crossed paths with Elaine Davis. And as I was digging into this connection, I was reminded of something Lance's shipmate, Roger Korth, had said several episodes back. If you could put him in a chronological order, you might be able to determine whether there is an increase in devious activity. Because, you know, if this happened in San Diego, 
Well, did anything happen in San Diego at the time, in that month maybe? Or if it was in Fort Chicago, did anything happen in San Francisco or in the Concord area that you could say, gee, you know, he might have had something to do with that? Well, now we know for certain that something did, in fact, happen in Concord. We just don't know who was responsible. Not yet, anyway. When it comes to the Black Friday gimmick rally, though, Chris Went did mention that unless Lance was reading the papers in the East Bay area, he may not have known about those rallies. However, he also qualified that statement with this, quote, gimmick rally clubs often advertised flyers at the events from other clubs, end quote. These events were largely advertised by word of mouth, yes, but think of these rallies not just as games where the map is the game board and the car is the game piece, but think of them from the perspective of a serial killer. What a perfect way to case neighborhoods, shopping malls, pizzerias, or other members in the club and all manner of potential victims along the given routes. To that end, such a person would be vigilant about seeking out rally car events throughout the entire Bay Area, going out of his way to learn about as many rallies as he could. It would literally be a priority. I mean, the more I think about these rallies, the more I have come to see them as incredibly rich opportunities for someone who had nefarious intentions. Why? Because let's say you are a serial killer, acting as a lone wolf, and you keep casing a place. Chances are there could be witnesses that could identify you and your car. What would be your cover, especially if you didn't live in or work in the area? If the cops asked you why you were driving by X, Y, or Z house so many times, you could simply laugh it off and say you were part of a gimmick rally and you were trying to follow instructions and kept getting turned around, etc. Not only would the rallies be ideal prowling or trolling opportunities, but they could double as a cover. In fact, we shouldn't discount the idea or method of trolling, especially a potential method with so many quote-quote opportunities to stalk right out in the open as gimmick rallies may have afforded. In his groundbreaking work, Serial Killers, famed psychologist Joel Norris defined the seven phases of serial killing. The first is called the Aura Phase, wherein the psychopath enters into a realm of murderous ideation. According to Norris, the would-be killer begins to withdraw from everyday reality. Then, for this person, quote, sounds and colors become more vivid, odors more intense, and the killer's skin can become sensitive to even the slightest pressure, end quote. But then Norris details the pivotal shift in the killer's overall calculus, quote, what now replaces the reality of day-to-day experience is a compulsion to find a companion, at first in fantasy, who will act out a role in the killer's primal ritual. The aura phase can last only a moment or two, or it can last for months, end quote. And here I just want to briefly call your attention to Norris's language of the theater in describing the aura phase, his invocation of the word fantasy, which is not only something we've talked about extensively here before, and how Lance lives a rich fantasy life, but also the notion of quote-quote companion acting out a role in the killer's primal ritual. Again, something I want to underscore. But it is the second phase of Norris's seven phases of serial killing that I want to focus on here, and that is the trolling phase. Quote, having entered into a compulsive stage, the killer now actively begins searching for his next victim. His earlier obsessions, fantasies, and perverted needs direct him to the likeliest spots where the fatal stranger will cross his path, the parking lots of suburban shopping malls. 
darkened city streets where single people are apt to travel at night, the student centers and co-ed dormitories of university campuses, the playgrounds of elementary schools, or the rural roads where he has noticed that young children or co-eds walk home from school, end quote. Finally, I will add just one more component that Norris includes in the trolling phase of serial killing. He writes, quote, The latter part of the trolling phase involves the identification and stalking of the victim. Once he has identified his intended prey, the killer begins his pattern of stalking from a distance, end quote. It's worth repeating here that Lance Voss has not been charged with any crimes and is innocent until proven guilty, specifically of the cases to which he is most closely linked. But for the sake of argument, it's not that great of a leap to imagine how a psychopath could leverage the mechanics of something like a gimmick rally to troll both widely and thoroughly, yielding a plentiful pool of helpless prey. To that point, I wonder, is it feasible that Lance participated in the gimmick rally on Friday, November 28th in East Oakland and somehow crossed paths with Elaine Davis? Is it also possible that the rally gave him the opportunity to go off course, follow her back to her home at 158 Pioneer Avenue in Walnut Creek on the evening of November 28th? Lance could have staked out her house for a full three nights between the evening of the gimmick rally and the night of her abduction, observing the family's routine, noting how at 10.30 each night, Gretchen left to pick up her husband James in Concord, returning at about 11.15 each time, giving him a 45-minute window to make his move. I know that's layer upon layer of conjecture, but you should know that I found one more potential connection between Lance and Elaine Davis. Recall back in episode 11 that I mentioned that after Lance's discharge from the Navy in the summer of 68, he claims to have been in a motorcycle accident. This accident has been corroborated by Lance's ex-wife who said that his leg was severely injured. Although I've been unable to find any record of the wreck or any mention in the newspapers of a hospital admittance or discharge or a traffic citation, I will assume for the moment that it did in fact happen. But what I don't know is where it happened. If it happened in the Concord area, for instance, a town just five miles south of Port Chicago, where the USS Vesuvius docked, then he would have been admitted to the Concord Community Hospital. And that is where Elaine Davis was volunteering as a nursing assistant at the same time. Now, this is a big if, clearly, but according to newspapers, Elaine worked at that hospital from as early as April of 1968 through November of 1969, just a month preceding her death. So there is a possibility, however remote, that they could have crossed paths at the Concord Community Hospital. Again, maybe a stretch. That said, I think it's important to suss out any and all potential connections between what we know about Lance at the time and any cult cases that seem to resonate. After I briefed Detective Lou Doty on these aspects of the Davis case and Lance Voss, he still remained more or less convinced that Elaine Davis was one of Philip Hughes's victims. And he could very well be right on the money. Both he and Paul Holes have studied these cases far more than I have, and they are, well, you know, actually trained investigators, whereas I am not. So I'm reluctant to second-guess their solid work. Even so, I was recently listening to an episode of the Small Town Dicks podcast where they interviewed Paul Holes on the Elaine Davis case. And when it came to Philip Hughes, Paul hedged a bit, conceding that Hughes might not be Elaine's killer. The killer could be someone else. So Paul left the door open a little bit more so than Detective Doty did. For me, though, there are still a few things that stand out in the three known Hughes murders. 
First is that none of them were dismembered. Of course, as we have discussed on this show, MOs can and do change. Second, none of them were disposed of in or near water. Third, all three were killed in and disposed of in the greater East Bay area. And just to give you some geographical context, Walnut Creek is about 72 miles north of Santa Cruz. San Jose, however, is only 33 miles away, and as such, sits rather neatly at about the halfway point between the East Bay and Santa Cruz. Again, and this could be important, if a perpetrator was trolling some 30 miles north of his home and disposing of the bodies 30 miles south of his home, this geographical positioning would provide something of a double buffer from immediate suspicion. 30 miles is far enough, but not too far in other words. To that point, we know that in the Civic 3 cases, Brandy's and Christina's bodies were found some 25 miles from their last known whereabouts, and Kristen David's remains were found about 30 miles south of where she lived in Moscow, Idaho. So there is that. Something else that stands out is the window of time. The three women Hughes murdered were killed between 1972 and 1975. Elaine Davis was December of 1969, about three years before Maureen Fields' murder. So Elaine's death doesn't necessarily fall within the exact window of time. Of course, that doesn't exactly mean much on its own, but it's just something else to consider. What is also known is that Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, was also active in Santa Cruz at the time, and what we know about Kemper is that dismemberment was absolutely central to his M.O., but Kemper could not have killed Elaine Davis. That much is certain. How do we know this? Well, because he was still incarcerated on December 1st, 1969, for having killed his grandparents five years earlier. Eerily enough, Kemper was released on December 18th, 1969, two days after authorities found Elaine's button on her property in Walnut Creek, and one day before a young woman's torso was found on the beach in Santa Cruz. December 18th also happened to be Kemper's 21st birthday, making him one year, one month, and three days younger than Lance Voss. Also filed under eerie and creepy is the fact that Philip Hughes was the same age as Kemper and Voss, having been born in either 1947 or 48. The records aren't clear. So you have two serial killers and one suspected serial killer, all within a year apart in age, living and operating in the same area. That's just hard for me to wrap my head around. And they weren't the only ones, but I digress. For the moment, I need to rewind the timeline from December 18th, when Elaine Davis's torso was found near the beach in Santa Cruz, to Wednesday, December 10th, 1969. It had been nine days since Elaine Davis went missing from her home in Walnut Creek. 4.3 miles north of Elaine's home, 16-year-old Leona Laurel Roberts had just finished what would be her first shift on her first day at the White Front Discount Store at 560 Contra Costa Boulevard in Pleasant Hill. It was just after 5 p.m. when Leona clocked out and exited the department store. Outside, it was dark, cool, and cloudy. The sky portended rain. Beneath her white front apron, Leona donned a one-piece tan dress with full-length sleeves and a high neck. In one hand, she held her keychain with two Nash automobile keys, two Volkswagen keys, and two house keys. In the other, she held a change of clothes, a pair of brown and white bell-bottom pants, size 14, and a black v-neck blouse with long sleeves and a bow in front. Leona's black purse was made of imitation leather with a top zipper, two side pockets, and a double shoulder strap. Her wallet contained several photographs and identification cards. Her watch was a lady's Hamilton yellow model 
with a link bracelet and a safety chain. Leona, still donning her white front apron, got into her orange Volkswagen, shut the door, started the engine, and pulled into traffic where wet pavement reflected a kaleidoscope of red, yellow, and green lights. As it happens, the white front discount store was 0.6 miles, or a three-minute drive north of the Sun Valley Mall in Concord, walking distance. Leona's plan? To drive to Greg Veo's apartment at 749 Tormy Avenue over in Rodeo, and here it gets a touch complicated, in part because of inconsistent reporting and in part because of some unknowns relating to Leona's relationship status. Newspapers and police consistently referred to Greg as Leona's boyfriend. At the same time, she was engaged to a Bernard Fister who was at the time serving overseas. Some papers reported that she was going to cook dinner for Greg, others state that he was going to cook for her. All reports, however, stipulate that Greg, a barber, was at work at the time. Like Elaine, Leona was petite and pretty, standing at 5 feet and weighing 100 pounds. She wore a shock of dark hair, had brown eyes, olive complexion, and a can-do smile. Formerly of Vallejo and named after her maternal grandmother, Leona lived with her mother, Eileen, in nearby Napa. Her mother, a psychiatric nurse at Napa State Hospital, separated from her husband, Glenn Wesley Roberts, a diminutive man with a bad left eye, at some point leading up to 1969. At the time, Leona was a student at a local beauty college in addition to working at Whitefront. Depending on traffic, the drive would have taken Leona about 20 to 30 minutes, give or take, clocking her arrival at Greg's place at around 5.30, 5.40 p.m. At about 6.15, one of Greg's neighbors, Susan Clark, heard a girl screaming and footfalls of someone running from the back of the apartment complex near the building's stairs. She then heard the slamming of a car door and saw a blue station wagon drive off. Clark then phoned the sheriff. She later said, quote, I'm not easily startled, but this was the kind of scream that makes your hair stand on end. End quote. Another neighbor named Betty Ray said she saw a young man about 25 years old near the apartments that day, walking back and forth from the front door of Greg's apartment and a blue station wagon. The young man was described as blonde, wearing brown trousers and a jacket. When Greg Voya got home from work around 7 p.m., he noticed how several things were off. First, his small Christmas tree had been upset. Second, although Leona's orange Volkswagen was parked outside, she was nowhere to be found. Her white front department store apron was on the couch and a pair of his pants had been removed from the bedroom to the living room and notably the belt was missing from the pants. Greg then noticed scuff marks near the rear entrance indicating a struggle. When the police arrived on scene, they agreed with Greg that something was not right with the situation. After canvassing neighbors and knocking on doors, Lieutenant Norris D. Holthus said, quote, We have to assume the worst, end quote. He then added, quote, This is not a routine runaway, end quote. In subsequent days, police leaned on their primary suspect, the boyfriend Greg, and they leaned on him hard even though his alibi was solid. He'd been at work. Eighteen days later, on December 28, 1969, an elderly man collecting driftwood at Bolinas Lagoon happened upon a completely nude girl. When police arrived, they identified the girl as Leona Roberts. The coroner estimated that she had been dead between four and seven days, putting her death somewhere between December 21st and December 24th, Christmas Eve. That means that her abductor likely kept her alive for 10 to 14 days before her death, 
which, oddly enough, was determined to be caused by, quote, a viral infection of an unidentified species, end quote. Further testing did not find any drugs or alcohol in her system. A number of investigators, including Paul Holes, believe the stated cause of death is dubious at best. Here you have another girl in the same age range as Elaine Davis and Antoinette Nino, who was found completely nude in a body of water. According to the official report from the California Justice Department, not only did police not find any clothing, but Leona was missing several other items, such as her keys, her purse, wallet, and yellow gold Hamilton women's watch. And as an aside, the missing wallet and keys are reminiscent, at least to me, of the Diane Taylor case, wherein both wallet and keys were missing. On that same day, December 10th, 1969, Zodiac, or someone claiming to be Zodiac, mailed a cryptic message to the Sacramento Bee. The message dubbed, Forecast for Cancer, is essentially an astrology page out of a book for the sign of cancer. The cryptic part entails words that appear to have been clipped out of other periodicals and then pasted over the horoscope. The pasted-on words include, quote, action guide, want, zodiac, watch, hidden, end quote. And the phrase is, quote, birds fly south, flight 555, and magic amulet, end quote. On the top page, the word cancer is circled. You can find a copy of this message on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources clues. There have been numerous theories on what these words may or may not mean. And believe me when I say that the rabbit holes on these words are numerous and deep. I have yet to fully dive into these words and what they may possibly mean, but I wanted to call your attention to the message because it was sent on the very day Leona Roberts was abducted and nine days after Elaine Davis went missing. The next day, on December 11th, yet another cryptic message was sent to the San Francisco Newspaper Printing Company. This one is dubbed Forecast for Leo. Those who follow the Zodiac cases diligently believe there is a link between this message and Leona Roberts because of the similarity of the words Leo and Leona. While far less legible than the forecast for cancer, this message also includes a jumble of words and phrases such as, quote, thrilling phenomenon. Phrases include flight three of a kind, dangerous ride, and warring love emotions. Again, I have not waded too far into the quagmire of these so-called zodiac messages, but because they surround the dates of Elaine's and Leona's disappearances, I thought I'd at least acknowledge them. Out of the two cases, I think there are some strong connections between Lance and Elaine as outlined earlier. The only real connection I could draw between Leona and Lance is that her place of work was walking distance from the Concord Sun Valley Mall, a spot for gimmick rallyists. The young man lurking around Greg Veo's apartment was described as about 5'8", and so doesn't really match the description of Lance. He's also described as blonde. But, as we've discussed elsewhere in the show, people aren't always reliable when it comes to judging height and weight. The witness who clocked this individual at around 5'8 was viewing him from her upstairs apartment, which would skew her perception, it would seem. And recently, team member Kathy shared with me another study that also shows the fallibility of people's ability to assess height and weight. And there's this. The individual in question with the blue station wagon may have had nothing to do with Leona's abduction. I've been trying to track down any other cars Lance may have been driving at the time to see if Blue Station Wagon popped up, but haven't found anything other than his Blue Saab, which I doubt could be mistaken for a station wagon. I reached back to Karen Dill to see if she could maybe try to remember anything about the car Lance or his mother had been driving when she visited them in 1970. 
She couldn't recall. She just remembered that it was, quote, roomy, end quote. But when I was talking with Karen, she told me about another incident that occurred between her and Lance back in the Austin neighborhood when they were growing up. And basically, I, I had the memory of a conversation when I was in California with him asking me, do you remember what, it was either something like, do you remember what happened or do you remember what you did when I was walking with you in Chicago near your house? And I said, yes, I bit you. <laughs> and we just kind of laughed about it at the time. But my memory was that it must have been at about the same time as we were maybe planning or getting ready for the trip, for the, the um, camping trip. Right. So I think I was about 10 and he was probably about 13 or 14. And nine, maybe I was nine. Yeah, I probably was nine because I think it was 1960. Anyway, like I said, he was just playfully talking to me and he wound up putting his hand over my mouth. And I bit his hand. <laughs> so. <laughs> so he playfully put his hand over your mouth and yeah. you, you, you bit him. Yes. Do you remember why your instinct was to bite him? I mean, was it, did it not seem playful at the time or? Um, I guess it was kind of a mix of being annoyed mm. and, and playful, whatever. Because I don't think, I don't, I mean, I don't think I bit him hard enough that he needed stitches or anything. I'm sure it was just something where it was, where it was painful and, and he remembered it, whatever. Maybe I left a, maybe I left a mark. I just, I don't, you know, I don't recall, but it must have been, it was something that obviously it was, he remembered it and I remembered it, whatever. Right. It stuck with him. Yeah. That you had bit his his hand. You know, on the one hand, I can see that just being kind of innocent, goofing around kids yeah. being kids, right? Like, right. that's nothing yeah. too crazy. I mean, that's, that's the way I looked at it at the time, you know, that he was just teasing me, you know, making fun of me or something. I'm not sure exactly what, the, what brought it on or why he you know, put his hand over my mouth, but that was my instinct at the time was to bite him. Right. So. So you you can look at it two ways, right? Like like I said, it was just innocent fun between kids. That kind of thing happens all the time, every day. But, you know, you can also look at it maybe a more sinister way if what we think about Lance is true, and we don't know if it's true because he's still innocent yeah. until proven guilty. But, you know, there is a, another way that you can look at it. Yeah, which you've mentioned about the... Aura. Yeah, the aura phase of serial killers where they kind of live in the fantasy realm of the acts. They're not quite acts yet. They're just sort of in the the, the imagination or, in, you know, in the mind. Building up to something more involved. Right, yeah. And then the other thing, of course, that I'm thinking of is the amount of time he spends talking about hands in the Notes Plus article where he's talking about the mass murderer in this English exercise for students talking about the size of the murderer's hands. And um, it was just something I thought of when you had pinged me a while back with this memory that you had. Yeah. I mean, again, it can be completely innocuous, but it stuck out to him and it stuck out to you. Yeah, I mean, we hadn't, you know, hadn't talked until I was in California, you know, and that was something that he brought up 
I probably might not have even remembered at the time, but then, you know, he mentioned it. I said, yeah, I bit you. (laughs) And we just laughed. Like so many things pertaining to Lance, this odd interaction could be seen as benign, just a teenage kid being goofy. But when you supply the context of what we know about Lance and what we suspect about Lance, well, this incident seems chilling, at least to me. The chilling part, I think, has to do with the fact that he remembered the event and that he asked her about it. It's chilling to me, too, when you think of his preoccupation with hands in the Notes Plus article. One has to wonder, when he covered her mouth, was he rehearsing? Was he play-acting a part of his fantasy? One has to wonder, was he operating in the aura phase of serial killing at the time? Even though Karen says he was teasing her and that he playfully put his hand over her mouth, she felt compelled to bite him. Hard enough, she said, that he remembered. So, one again has to wonder, why was her instinct to bite? Did she feel at some primal level that she was in danger? And finally, I have to wonder this. How close was Karen to becoming a victim, another Diane Taylor? I mean, that's probably not likely given that their families were close, but it's still one of those touch points that I think is worth thinking about. Ultimately, we'll never know the intention there, but it is another glimpse into his behavior, and it's one that I find disturbing, or potentially so. Anyway, switching gears for the moment, one thing you should know, and you probably already do, is that there were so many cases in the greater Bay Area during this time that could potentially be linked to Lance or Zodiac or Hughes or Kemper or other serial killers who were active at the time. In fact, there are so many that it's overwhelming and there are too many for us to get into, at least for the time being. In fact, there's a whole spate of killings known as the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders that we may have mentioned on the show before, and we'll likely take those up in an upcoming episode, as some of the aspects in those cases do seem to overlap with the cases in the Lewiston-Clarkston Valley. In fact, so numerous were the unsolved murders of young women in the area that in 1975, the California Department of Justice compiled what they called a special report of unsolved female homicides. Fourteen of these murders, the report concluded were likely perpetrated by the same individual. In this report, the California DOJ put together what they believe to be a profile of their suspect, and I think it's worth sharing here. Now, there are 11 points to their profile, and I'll read them verbatim just to see if any, many, or all of these profile traits align with what we know about Lance. Not what we believe to be true, but what we actually know. And I think this is a critical distinction when it comes to profiling we have to be operating on a solid set of known knowns. Here's the profile. Quote, It is the writer's opinion that the suspect is, one, male, because of the strength required to throw the bodies to their resting places. Two, Caucasian, because the majority of the known perpetrators in past crimes of this nature were Caucasian. Three, under 50 years of age because of the sexual overtones involved in some of the killings. A psychiatric evaluation of six murders in the series lists the suspect between 17 and 25 years of age. His physical strength and because the majority of known offenders in similar crimes were below the age of 50. 4. Physically strong for the same reason as cited in number 1. 5. Familiar with witchcraft or the occult because of a witchcraft symbol found during the Caroline Davis case and the possible occult involvement in the missing female cases in the states of Oregon and Washington. 6. A lone operator because of the nature of the crimes and the fact that the suspect has not been detected. 
If this was a group effort, the chances are that some information on the suspects would have been detected and reported. 7. Cunning because of the lack of evidence at discovery sites. The suspect apparently parked his vehicle in the roadway and not on the shoulder, thus eliminating the possibility of obtaining tire track impressions. 8. Knowledgeable in the art of knot tying because of the type of knots used in binding Teresa Walsh. Other victims also showed signs of being bound. However, no bindings were located at the scenes. 9. Familiar with the geographical areas where the bodies were deposited. Because of the close proximity of the discovery sites in Sonoma County and in San Francisco. 10. A collector of his victim's clothing because none of the clothing of the 14 victims has ever been found. 11. Probably working in a job that allows him to travel about freely and unsupervised, primarily along US Highway 101, such as a long-haul truck driver, traveling salesman, or construction worker. The majority of the bodies were discovered east of Highway 101 within a few miles of the highway. End quote. Okay, so how many of those markers align with what we actually know about Lance? I counted 10 of 11 that I could definitively say match what we do know about Lance. And out of those 10 markers, a few jumped out at me. The occult is mentioned, and that marker is also linked, the report stated, to cases in Oregon and Washington. Now, we know from witnesses and Clint that Lance studied the occult. They also believe that their suspect was a lone operator. And here, I just want to underscore that point. Why? Because there are those who are familiar with the Voss cases who are still trying to push conspiracy theories that there were pedophilia or swinger rings in the valley, and that Lance and law enforcement and countless others were somehow all in on it. All of which is total nonsense and none of which is plausible for reasons I listed several episodes back. Moving on, the California DOJ suspect is also knowledgeable in knot tying. Lance learned knot tying while in the Navy. The age of their suspect aligns with Lance at the time. He also aligns with the marker about being familiar with the geography, and we know that because he participated in numerous gimmick rallies throughout the Greater Bay Area. And finally, that their suspect likely worked a job that allowed him to travel freely and unsupervised. Now, what I can say definitively about this marker is the following. In addition to his traveling via gimmick rallies, Lance also obtained his real estate license a job which may have allowed him unsupervised travel. More important though, and this is something we will get into more thoroughly in the next episode, is that when he was married to his first wife, she worked and he didn't, but he made her take public transportation while he took the car every day and all day doing God only knows what. Finally, the only marker that I couldn't see aligned definitively with what we know about Lance is number 11, a collector of victims clothing. And although missing clothing has been a through line through all of these cases, we still can't say definitively that he was responsible for any of those murders. So we can't really put that in the column of known knowns. It's just something we suspect. So in the California DOJ special report, they not only list the profile of their suspect, but they list these following attributes that comprise, apparently, the extent of their victim profile. One, female. Two, Caucasian, with the exception of Yvonne Quillentang, African-American. Three, between 12 and 24 years of age. Four, of small to medium physical stature. Five, with long hair parted down the middle. Six, with pierced ears. Seven, attired in casual street clothing. 
While the report does go on to give details about their physical descriptions and clothing, this, for the most part, is the profile, the common markers. And this seems to me flimsy, especially when you consider what FBI profiler Julia Cowley said on the show earlier about victimology. I mean, who were these girls and women, really? What did they like? What did they dislike? What did they fear? Where did they hang out? If in school, what classes were they taking? Did they go shopping? If so, where and how often? Did they have common friends, etc.? In another section titled General Observations, the report goes out of its way to say that several of the victims were, quote, involved with narcotics, end quote, but that drugs did not factor into the crimes. I mean, why mention that at all? To me, with the advantage of hindsight, this feels awfully close to victim blaming. These crimes occurred in California in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and I'm willing to bet that a majority of young women and men in this age range had either tried smoking pot, did it recreationally, or at least had friends who did. I mean, it was everywhere. Other observations pointed out that the majority of the victims were, quote, sexually active and came from broken homes, end quote. These observations also feel like a tacit lecture on the consequences of what? quote quote promiscuity and broken homes i mean if they did drill down a little deeper then maybe something within those data points could be useful and for me i'd like some more clarity like what defines a broken home single parents kids living with grandparents or relatives foster care was there a boyfriend who dated one or more of the girl's mothers was there a stepdad or father who was known to be overly friendly with young women etc again i just have more questions and answers here my complaints notwithstanding, however, I still think it's important to see how and where these markers of the victims align with the known cases we're looking at. Conservatively, I can say that maybe with the exceptions of pierced ears and hair being parted in the middle on all victims, all of the other markers align exactly. But the one marker that has grabbed my interest lately is number four on their list of small to medium physical stature. And I've been thinking about the physical stature of the victims ever since I read the Notes Plus article wherein Lance wrote about crushing the life out of weaker opponents. With this in mind, I went back over the physical descriptions of our known victims looking for specifics and to see if they were alike or fell within a similar range of height and weight. Turns out they did. And if I were to generalize my own victim profile, I would say instead of small to medium stature, that they instead averaged about 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, plus or minus. For instance, Christina Nelson, 5 feet 1, 120 pounds. Brandy Miller, 4 feet 11, 120 pounds. Kristen David, 4 feet 11, 115 pounds. And while I don't know the heights and weights of Christina White or Antoinette Anino, I can guess from their ages and photographs that they were very likely within the same range. Elaine Davis was exactly 5 feet 100 pounds. Leona Roberts was 5 feet 110 pounds. Marie Antoinette Ancy was 4 feet 11 and 95 pounds. But I call your attention to these physical descriptions and their clear similarities for another reason. In the mid-1990s, Lance was actively posting in online message boards ranging on any number of subjects from politics to war to music. In one particular posting that Gloria found, Lance mentioned something that strikes me as bizarre, something that might be considered gratuitous, something, in other words, that stands out and calls attention to itself. In a post discussing the French horn, Voss wrote, quote, The thumb valve trigger is a muting valve. 
I have a junior high student who has one. The light weight is an advantage since my student is about 5 feet 1 and 100 pounds. The pinky F valve is only good for those otherwise unobtainable bass clef notes. Tuning is too much of a problem to use it in the upper ranges." End quote. Can you see why I find the mention of the student's height and weight bizarre? Now he doesn't mention the gender of the student, but still one can guess. The inclusion of the student's height and weight is what in writing we would call a non sequitur, meaning that information doesn't follow sequentially or logically from what was said before or what was said after. Meaning why in the hell did he include that information in a post about the French horn? I mean if you were discussing wrestling where at least weight matters then I could see it. So why include that particular data? That he supplied those specifics means that he had at some point prior to that message literally sized up his student. Now I want you to think about that for a cool minute. He didn't just say his student was on the small size, he provided dimensions and readily so. Like that's how he sees people, or more to the point that's how he sees children, in terms of body dimensions, and in the most random of contexts, like he couldn't help himself. And the more I look at the posting, the more it creeps me out. I mean start with the fact that he had junior high students, that part is potentially alarming all on its own. But something about the first line stuck out to me as well. In that line you should know that the word trigger appears in quotation marks, as in quote, the thumb valve trigger is a muting valve, end quote. Yeah, the thumb as it relates to the hands of deadly strength and a trigger that is used to mute or silent sound. Anyway, if you think this is the only eerie message board post he wrote, just you wait, because there are so many more. The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media, LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Original music is written and performed by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, associate producers and investigators Gloria Bobertz and Paul Dale, graphic designer and content contributor Samantha Sawyer, research consultant and criminologist Dr. Marianne White, and research assistant Tina Landry-Otti. Special thanks to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to check us out online where you can subscribe to the show and find resources, photos, timelines, articles, links, and more. Next time on The Snake River Killer. For a mother who wants her son to be a perpetual child, the actual proof that he's a sexual being is the grandchild. And in a weird kind of Freudian way, I think... There's a possibility that that's there. This was published January 25th of 1966. And if you remember that date that he was AWOL from Bremerton for a while was January 7th through the 11th. There was apparently um, a case of a prowler in the Bremerton area with a history of attempted assault on women, brought a warning today from police chief John Pluff for residents to tighten up on their home security. This type generally does not break in and enter, but gains entry through unlocked windows or doors. But check this out. The prowler, a young, soft-spoken man believed to be in his 20s, you know, once we were in the barracks, if somebody got up in the middle of the night and wanted to walk out, I guess they could, you know, for a smoke break or something like that. As long as it was quiet, we really didn't care much what happened.